Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. All right. Well, good afternoon to those of you on the West Coast of the United States. Uh, it's a little bit later evening for those on the East Coast. This is the Pro-Life Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Clinton Wilcox, and I have a guest with me today. Uh, Nathan is traveling, and so he's not able to join me, but I've asked Chris Christensen to join me. He's the guy that we reviewed his debate last week between him and Valerie Tirico. So Chris, uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us all a little bit about yourself? Okay, yeah. So my name is Chris from Canada. Uh, I'm about 35 years old. I've been married to my wife, Amy, for about three years. And I have a BA in youth leadership, a master's in apologetics. And I've recently, maybe, I guess maybe in the last couple of years, at least really started looking into the pro-life side of apologetics and eating up as much as I can of books by uh, Stephanie Gray, Francis Beckwith, Randy Alcorn, uh, just trying to learn all that I can because I've always believed that abortion was a great moral evil that needed to be stopped and want to do my part to fight it. So, Well, you'll uh, fit in just, just fine here. Nathan and, and myself, too, are really passionate about the abortion issue and especially when it comes to educating. So we're glad to have you join us today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, no problem. Uh, Chris and I are going to analyze a YouTube video that's called A Politically Neutral Take on When Human Life Begins, and it's by someone named Ryan Chapman. This this video was actually posted in a pro-life group that, I, that I'm a part of, and they were kind of wondering what people's thoughts are. And I was thinking, well, it might actually make a good topic for a podcast episode. So from what I can tell, the the video itself is just trying to present the facts of of human development in a way that doesn't have any, any sort of bias behind it. And that's, that's admirable, of course. But before we actually start with the video, I just kind of wanted to say a couple of things real quick. The purpose of the video is to talk about when science says that human life begins and whether or not there's a scientific consensus and presented in an unbiased way. He'll begin talking about how he did a Google search for it, found some pro-choice videos or, or articles on it, and they had their own ideas, but they were presenting it in a biased way. Then he found some pro-life ones, and they presented it in a biased way. And so he wanted to just pre- present a completely unbiased take on this issue. 
And so the thing I wanted to just briefly mention before we start in the video is that bias is not necessarily a bad thing or it doesn't necessarily make someone's views unreliable. Now it can, someone of course can be extremely biased toward one thing and so that totally taints their ability to look at an issue objectively. That's certainly an issue. But just being biased in and of itself doesn't mean that the information presented is wrong or is unreliable. What matters is the evidence that they present for their position. If someone is pro-life and is saying, you know, here's the, the facts of embryology and we all know it's wrong to kill human beings, so therefore abortion is immoral. Well, they're making two kinds of claims here. They're making the scientific claim and then they're making the moral claim. But just because they're drawing a moral conclusion from the scientific facts doesn't necessarily mean that their, their scientific information is unreliable. In fact, it could very well be that they're drawing correct moral conclusions from the scientific evidence as it is. So I just wanted to say that real quick before we actually dive into the video itself. Okay, so um, Chris, I'm going to go ahead and play the video. If there's something you want to stop about and talk about it, just let me know. You can just say stop or, or whatever. Okay. Otherwise, if there's something I want to talk about, I'll, I'll go ahead and pause it. Okay, so here is the video, a politically neutral take on when human life begins. According to science, when does human life begin? So I Googled that question the other day, and the results I saw were, to me, more biased than what I was expecting. Um, a lot of the results were from the media. Um, a lot of that media I'm pretty comfortable calling liberal. And it seemed like they were convoluting the question. It's like they were mystifying it. They were making it seem like there was no scientific consensus. And it's such a difficult question to ask that maybe we just shouldn't even ask it and maybe we'll never know the answer. Um, so that was one end of the spectrum. And then the other end, um, the media on the right, um, a lot of which is um, religious media, they were eager to use the science and used it well, as far as I can tell, um, to a point, but then they seemed really eager to um, draw implications from it and pretended that those implications came directly from the science. Um, in okay, way this is the one point that I that came that caught my attention. Okay. I, I found myself wishing after listening to the whole thing that he had actually given some of these examples of some of the implications that he saw people drawing that he didn't think were that great or solid. Right. Um, yeah, he's so vague about it. I'm kind of left wondering what he found so questionable in the first place. It doesn't really give much of a starting point to see whether he's fairly considered it or not. Yeah, that's true. Um, he does. He does say that the pro-life sites he found seem to be using the science well. So obviously, you know, the fact that they were presenting it in a way that he thought was biased toward the pro-life view wasn't tainting their their view of the science, like it was the pro-choice sites that he found, which were trying to claim that there was no scientific consensus on when human life begins. And of course, we know that that's just a, a bogus claim. Scientists discovered in the mid-1800s that human life begins at fertilization. And Steve Jacobs, who is, I believe he's a pro-life uh, sociologist, but he sent out questionnaires to thousands of biologists and uh, mm -hmm. asking them essentially when human life begins. And 96% of them all said human life begins at fertilization. So there absolutely is a scientific consensus. There's, you know, there may not be a 100% consensus across the board, but regarding embryo uh, embryological texts, there's a consensus. And regarding the vast, vast majority of biologists, there's a consensus also. Yeah. So I, I would say that in this case, the pro-choice bias is not 
comparable to the pro-life bias because the pro-life bias, the, the pro-life sites were representing the science correctly. It was just the moral implications they were drawing it that uh, that Ryan here feels what wasn't a, a good application of the science. Okay, we'll go ahead and continue on. He didn't seem honest. Um, it seemed like a stretch. So looking at that inspired me um, to try to make a politically neutral answer to the question. And so this is my attempt at it. So again, I'm only asking this question from a purely scientific point of view, not from a philosophical point of view. Um, and the only information I'm using was written directly by scientists, either in peer-reviewed academic journals or in textbooks. So science is obviously a broad discipline. So a good first step, I think, is to narrow down the pool of scientists that we're looking at to the pool of people that are the most specialized in what the question is asking. So if the question is, when does life begin, and we're asking from a biological standpoint, then I think the field that's best suited to answer the question is embryology. Embryologists um, study prenatal development. So that'd be sex cells, um, fertilization, and the development of uh, the embryo and the fetus. So they're specifically narrowed into what we're looking at. Okay, so now with all that in mind, um, this is what a prominent embryologist has to say about the question. Virtually every human embryologist and every major textbook of human embryology states that fertilization marks the beginning of life of the new individual human being. So that was from an academic journal. Um, let's just not take him on his word for it, though. Um, so here's a few more quotes, um, this time from textbooks. Human development begins at fertilization when a male gamete or sperm unites with a female gamete or oocyte to form a single cell, a zygote. This highly specialized totipotent, um, which means it can develop into things, cell marked the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. Here's another one. Although life is a continuous process, fertilization is a critical landmark because under ordinary circumstances, a new genetically distinct human organism is thereby formed. Um, here's one more. Almost all higher animals, um, this includes humans, start their lives from a single cell, the fertilized ovum. The time of fertilization represents the starting point in the life history or ontogeny of the individual. So there's pretty strong consensus among embryologists. Um, human life begins at fertilization. Um, if anyone wants to follow up on that, I have sources down in the description. Okay, so here's where I'll go ahead and, and pause for a moment. Um, obviously, the information that he presented was very good. He presented it from academic journals and from embryology textbooks, which is great. Pro-life people use the same sources. And in fact, I, I have a page saved in Google Docs that has a long list of quotes by embryologists that I, I occasionally pull out. Uh, the one by Keith L. Moore, uh, Antivia and Perso, uh, and then the one by Fabiola Mueller and yeah, Aurelian Mueller is another one that I use uh, fairly frequently. And so, yeah, so you'll find these from pro-life organizations and sites too. So we all agree on the scientific aspect here. And it's a good thing to point out too, that we don't want to confuse the biological and, and philosophical question. When we talk about human life, we want to make sure that we're specifically talking of biological human life, because often even in the academic literature, sometimes people will use the term human being to mean person. But that's that's confusing because if you're talking about a human being, it seems the, the more, I guess, straightforward uh, thing that you would take away from that would be the bio biological aspect. So I think that people in this discussion on all sides could do a lot better in actually just 
making sure you use the correct terms. When, when you say human being, mean biological human being, and when you use the term person, that's more the philosophical rights-bearing entity kind of thing. Yeah, no, I like how he does that distinction too and defines his terms on that. That's probably the most key thing to begin these discussions with. It's also, it's kind of neat that he's making that strong a case because often what I find pro-choicers saying is, and maybe it's because they're conflating the two, but they'll often say, we have science backing us up. We know that it's, you know, A, either not human or it's not alive. And it's like, okay, but which science are you referring to? Because all the ones from the relevant field seem to be saying the exact opposite. Um, one guy I was talking to, he was trying to say that uh, it was it wasn't human because it doesn't have a spinal cord. He's like, it's not a mammal until it has a bone structure. And it's like, yeah, but if it wasn't human and a mammal to begin with, it wouldn't develop one. Right, exactly. Yeah, I, I think a lot of times in this discussion, they tend to overlook that that human development is a process. You know, it's true of mammals that they have a vertebrae and that they have hair, you know, among other things. But you don't start with those things. You have to develop those things after a long process of, of development. So whatever whatever is biologically X remains biologically X and is biologically X from the very beginning. That goes for human beings, that goes for dogs, that goes for cats, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, the, the whole point of, of human development is often lost in these discussions. I feel like the... I'm still new to some of the terms, but that would be like talking basically about necessary versus sufficient, right? For what makes something a certain being or... Not necessarily that. Okay. Because, yeah, when we're talking about development, we're, we're talking about more of like what their capacities are. And okay. so, in fact, I, I think you, you, uh, you've, you've probably encountered those terms when you read Frank Beckwith, and I think you might have used it in your debate too. The reason that that mammals, for example, you know, we usually think of mammals as as entities with hair. Yeah, so we wouldn't necessarily frame it in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions. We would just term it in terms of of the fact that what that they have the inherent capacity to to develop these things. And so, for example, human beings are the kinds of things which are also rational. And so, I wouldn't say it's a sufficient condition to be rational if you're a human being, because there might be other uh, other entities which are rational as well, but would not be human. You know, I wouldn't frame this in terms of necessary or sufficient conditions because it's still the case that an embryo is a rational entity. It just needs time to develop its rationality. So it's not just that it, it's a sufficient condition of humanity to be rational. And so the unborn is still human despite being rational. It's it's more like it, it is a rational entity. It has the inherent capacity for rationality. It just needs time to develop that. Okay. okay, so we'll go ahead and continue on with the video here. So fertilization is when the sperm reaches the egg and then they fuse together to make one organism. So the sperm had 23 chromosomes, um, the egg had 23 chromosomes, and then they fuse together and make a new single-celled organism called the zygote. And then that zygote directly grows into whatever you look like now. So you might ask how a single-celled organism can be a human. And that's fair. It does seem weird. But they would answer that it can't be anything but a human. It's a genetically distinct single cell um, made from a human sperm and a human egg um, that has two options. Either it dies or it just continues to develop into what we're used to seeing as a human. 
Um, so it can't be anything but human. Um, it's just the first point on human development. And two, uh, if you want to call a zygote a human being, it needs to be an organism. So in order for it to be biologically classified as an organism, it needs to have a certain complexity. It needs to have interdependent functions and it needs to be independent. Um, so like a cell in your cheek isn't independent. It's part of the bigger you. Um, you can't remove a cell in your cheek and call it a human being. It's just a piece of a human being. Um, but a zygote is independent. A zygote might be inside another person. Um, in most cases, it would be in their fallopian tubes. Um, but it's its own distinct thing. It's just in an environment of another person. So that's the gist of it. So like if you span out your history and, you know, right now you're somewhere in the middle, maybe you're in the middle of your life, we'll say, um, at the end, uh, is where you die. Um, and at the beginning of your life, the beginning of your history, you were this zygote and you were just a single celled organism that had a continuous history all the way up until when you died. And it makes sense that, you know, of course we all started from one cell, um, you know, biologically speaking. So it seems obvious. I think the part that gets counterintuitive is calling it a human being, but that's the insight that embryologists gave us. They looked into the genetic makeup of the single cell and they looked at the behavior of it. And the consensus among them is that yes, this single cell is a human being. Okay. So here he was talking about a few things which kind of differentiate between the embryo and the adult that it later becomes. And it can appear unintuitive to some people that the single cell zygote could be a human being. But as he was talking about, there is a continuous biological development from the embryo into the adult that it will become. That biological connectedness means that it's the same, at least scientifically speaking, it's the same entity, the same organism through all points. And so at, at each point along its development, it is and it remains a human being. Yeah, I think that counterintuitive part, it's felt like that's what kind of came up in the debate that I did with Valerie too, where she says, you know, if you're going to say that, it was more, I think, during the dialogue that she said it, but she's like, you know, if you're going to say that I have the, the same moral value as an a first stage embryo then we can't even have this conversation and it's like well i'm basing it on the fact that it's a like i'm not saying that you have the embryo maybe has the same family responsibilities the same job the things that make you you but i'm saying that you all share that same thing that you're a human in a certain stage of development and doesn't right. matter how counterintuitive it is it's just a fact of that yeah, in fact, one of the charges that a pro-choice person will sometimes will sometimes level at a pro-life person is that our position is just based on. Well, often they'll they'll throw out religion, but if it's not religion, they'll say that our position, our pro-life position, is just an emotional appeal. <laughs> but, but you know that, that's a, that's a funny claim though, because you know the reason they reject it being wrong to kill embryos is because they feel nothing emotionally for that for that embryo. And so we are pro-life despite the fact that we have no emotional connection to that embryo. You know, when I see a single cell or a zygote, you know, or whatever, an embryo at the blastocyst stage or whatever, I feel no emotional attachment toward it. I don't humanize it because not necessarily humanize, uh, anthropomorphize is really, I guess, the better word for it. Like, I don't anthropomorphize it by thinking of it in terms of things that it, it is not. You know, I, I do humanize it because it's a human being, but it's a, it's a human being at, at one of its earliest stages of development. 
And so even though it doesn't look like us, it does look exactly like a human should at that stage in its development. So our position is based entirely on science. If it's true that human life begins at fertilization, and it is, then it's true that it's a human being from fertilization. That That's just science. If you disagree with that, you're opposing science. You know, that's not our opinion. It's what scientists have discovered. You can't really win sometimes in these either. You're not emotional enough or empathetic enough or, you know, you're, you're uh, too emotional and empathetic. It's, I think it's just whatever suits or arguments sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, depending on the pro-choice person you talk to, that, that can often be the case too, that they'll just throw out anything to save their position because, you know, as has been stated by, by some pro-choice people, I, I want to say it was Naomi Wolf, a pro-choice feminist, or it might've been someone else, but uh, one of those pro-choice feminists essentially said, if you're going to have the discussion about when human life, about human life, whether the embryo is human or not, you know, they're just not going to win against the pro-life, pro-life people. So they have to focus on other things, saying that we have just an emotional attachment to the embryo, saying that our arguments are just religious in nature, saying that we just hate women and want to control their sex lives, et cetera, et cetera. They can't win if we keep it focused on what the unborn is. And so that's why, pro-life people like Scott Klusendorf will be so adamant about keep the conversation focused on what the unborn is, because not only is that the main question, but it's also, it's also the point of discussion that pro-choice people just can't beat us on. Okay. Go ahead and continue here with the video. I also want to point out that there's a grammatical distinction, and this is important. There's a grammatical distinction that embryologists won't make, and that's calling a zygote a human person. Um, they'll call it a human being, a uh, human organism, human life, but embryologists won't call a zygote a human person. So that's the line in the sand that they've drawn. Uh, and I think in the context of this uh, conversation, human person means that a zygote would have the same considerations um, as a born human. So the same social, civil, legal rights. So this is a quote from a professor of healthcare ethics. As far as human life per se, it is for the most part uncontroversial among the scientific and philosophical community that life begins at the moment when the genetic information contained in the sperm and ovum combine to form a genetically unique cell. However, what is controversial is whether this genetically unique cell should be considered a human person. So that's the line. I think that's as far as we can currently push science without bringing any kind of moral interpretation into it. You might be watching this video and you already know all this. And if that's the case, great, uh, we're on the same page. But the point of this video is to bring hopefully more people onto the same page. So maybe someday we can push that line further along. So I'm not here to tell you what to think about it, but I do think we should all be on board with the basic facts. And I think we especially shouldn't be in denial of them or ignoring them because it's politically convenient, because I think that holds us all back. I also think we shouldn't use the facts to say things that they don't. So for example, if you went back and looked at the quotes I said earlier in the video, and then you use that quote to say that science is telling you that, you know, killing a zygote is murder. I think that's using science to reach um, conclusions that the science itself doesn't say. Okay. So, you know, a lot to agree with here in this video. You know, he presents the scientific facts of embryology well, 
and he wants to really get it across that we shouldn't combine the scientific and philosophical question. And I, I agree with that. When I do presentations for pro-life groups, one of the things I emphasize is keeping the science, uh, the scientific discussion and the philosophical discussion separate. It's uncontroversial scientifically that human life begins at fertilization. A lot of pro-choice people won't agree with this because they want to essentially eat their cake and have it too. They want to be able to say that we should protect human life at all stages and also keep their pro-choice stance because they don't want to protect human life before it's born. So they don't want to come across as monstrous because they want to, they want people to think that they care about all human life, but they don't want to consider the unborn human life. And so that's where we get into the human philosophy distinction, whereas pro-choice people will often just deny the biological humanity of the unborn. And many of them don't. Many of them are honest about the science, about the science where human life begins a fertilization, but many will still deny it. That's really where the academic discussion is. In academia, among philosophers, the question of when human life begins is not at issue. It, everyone concedes that human life begins a fertilization. Where the discussion is, and as Ryan here indicated, it's where, it's where you draw the line at personhood. And so the reason that embryologists will say, yeah, human life begins at fertilization, but still support doing abortions, is because they don't think that it's a person or something that we ought to protect in law. So that's why we have to kind of keep the two separate. And so when Ryan here talks about pro-life people who try to say that the science shows that, that abortion is murder, that just might be an uncharitable reading of these pro-life people. Because we get the science right. And so if the pro-life person has a prior commitment to their pro-life views, that, abort, that uh, killing human life intentionally uh, and without strong justification is murder, then to them, that person, he will think that science shows that abortion is murder. So in this case, I think it's just a case of the pro-life person not being careful enough with his speech. So, and, and I'm all about, I'm all for being, you know, deliberate about your words. So I, I absolutely think that, you know, as pro-life people, we should start using our terms more carefully. What I like with it is what Stephanie Gray does, I think, where she's like, yeah, she doesn't do what he's saying, which is to, you know, jump from, oh, it's killing a biological human life to murder. What What she does instead is she asks the question, why are they well, why are they saying that this human at this stage of development isn't a person? And she's showing that it's discrimination based on age. You know, like this, it's like if we were starting to say a three-year-old isn't a person, so-and-so isn't a person. And then that just, it's discrimination based on age, which then they're using to justify killing. And it, it kind of ties into other acts of discrimination and atrocities that way. And there's that, I, that's the approach I've always kind of appreciated with it because nobody likes to be thought of as like discriminatory. We all like to think that we treat all humans equally. So if you can at least open people's eyes to that, that's a possibility of what they're doing. I think sometimes it kind of has that shock value of like, oh, well, I don't want to do that. So you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we'll go ahead and, and finish the video off here and then uh, finish up our comments on it. I think you're bringing your personal opinion into it, um, which is fine. You have every right to do that. But I think that you should own that that's what you're doing. Here's another quote. It's not from an embryologist, but it says everything I want to say right now. Establishing by clear scientific evidence the moment at which a human life begins is not the end of the abortion debate. On the contrary, 
That is the point from which the debate begins. So on that note, I'm going to wrap things up. Um, I hope this was helpful. Um, if you liked the video and you want to show your appreciation, any likes, comments, subscribes, uh, any, any interaction with the video uh, goes a long way towards getting it. Okay, and I, I will post a link to the video in the show notes too. All right, uh, so any, any last thoughts on the video before we move on? Yeah, I, I'm curious. I really hope that he posts a follow-up one, see what other conclusions he comes to from that. Hmm. Um, I'd be interested. I tried to actually do a little bit of a background look at him just to see if I could find out anything about the rest of his views, either hmm. politically or religiously. He, he seems like he trusts science a lot. That doesn't necessarily mean anything. He's, um, but I'd just be interested to see what his ideas of what constitutes a person are already and whether what he's found out has changed that or if it still kind of confirms what he's already thought so far so yeah all right well uh, i think i've pretty much said all i want to say on it so again i'll post that video in the show notes in case someone wants to go watch it in its entirety but you know it's it's only about eight minutes and 15 seconds long and so we basically played it in its entirety minus the spiel at the end uh which you know if you want to go show him some appreciation for for the video you can go do that so we have one more one more topic we wanted to discuss and this is one that uh that was kind of on chris's mind so i'll go ahead and uh, let you take the lead on this next discussion chris so yeah i've i've discussed abortion both in formal debates and just in personal conversations with friends of mine and i find that at the popular level one of the the objections that that comes up uh, is what about the times where God's killed uh, babies, children, innocents uh, in the Bible. And the other day I was talking to a friend specifically about abortion in the case of rape. And what I had argued was that while I understand why, somebody that's been raped would want to have an abortion to kind of be free of that reminder. It seems like we're punishing the child for what the father did. And usually that's not what we do in Canada. Uh, it's, we usually try to punish the person directly. We don't punish somebody that's right. not responsible. But then what they did was they pointed to the story in Samuel where David committed adultery with Bathsheba and he repented. So God didn't kill him but God did take the life of their child. And he said, well, doesn't that seem to be a case where God is actually punishing an innocent life for something that David did? So could that not possibly be a justification for doing that abortion in the case of rape? He didn't put it quite in those words, but it, that seemed to be kind of what he was getting at with it. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, I've thought about it a bit myself and to me, it, there's, reasons why I think that it was probably the best option for what happened, but I'm kind of just curious to, I guess, discuss it and see what sort of answers can be generated for it. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? I can give you mine in a minute, but I'm just curious what you, uh, what you think about it? My thought is this, I, I think about Israel's law and what God commanded to give the death penalty to somebody in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so you needed at least two witnesses in order to convict somebody of a capital offense that way. There wasn't that in the case of David. 
God knew what happened and maybe one other person knew what happened, but it didn't seem like anybody was really coming forward. So in that sense, like, I think that maybe God was following the law that he set there by not putting David to death. But I think still at the same time, David was showing signs of being like a lot of other kings at that point, being willing to power rape somebody and use the king advantage or sorry, his kingly station to his advantage. And so God needed to do something to show him the seriousness of that. And since, so in a sense, I guess I'm saying it was collateral damage in a sense. It was the only way at that point to effectively punish David without breaking the laws God had already put in place for Israel. Mm. I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's the idea I've been playing with. Well, it does. You know, there are a lot of uh, Christian thinkers who who have argued that God uses tragedy to sort of wake us up. You know, like uh, C.S. Lewis said that it, it's it's the megaphone to rouse a, a dying world uh, or something. It's, it's been a while since I've read that book. That That's similar to it. I believe that comes from the problem of pain. Uh, and so it, it's very possible he could have used the death of of David's child to as kind of a give him some kind of idea of what it was. I mean, you know, that, that wasn't the only thing because God also sent the prophet Nathan, who showed David the reality of his sin by using a, an analogy and kind of kind of hiding his intention and letting David basically condemn himself. And okay. David ended up repenting. So it could be that it could not be. Uh, the, the main response I would give to something like this is just to remember that there's a difference between what God can do morally and what we can do morally. Just because God does something does not mean it's morally permissible for us to do something. Uh, there, there's an example pro-choice people love to use. I believe it comes out of Exodus. It might be the passage in Numbers, but I want to say it's the passage in Exodus where it talks about how uh, if so, if a woman is caught in adultery, they have to mix water with wormwood, drink the water, and then if she was if she was not guilty, nothing would happen. If she was guilty, her womb would shrivel up. And so some people take that to be kind of a, a biblical example of an abortion. Well, it may or may not be because the, the idea was that she would become barren. But if there was a child that had already been conceived, that would likely kill the child, too, if that happened. So really, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a case of abortion per se. What it was is because uh, because Israel, the nation of Israel, considered children to be such a blessing from God. And they considered a barren womb to be a curse that any woman who was actually guilty of the crime would refuse to drink the the water with the wormwood and refuse to let her womb be shriveled up. So that was a way to kind of weed out who would who was actually guilty of the crime because someone who was not guilty of the crime would, would drink it no problem because nothing would happen to her. So, you know, we have to be careful about reading an anachronistic interpretation back into the past passages for one, but we also have to remember that humans are not the author of life. God is just because God takes a life for whatever reason does not mean that we are justified in doing so. For one thing, God created life. So he's the only one with the authority to take it, but he also has, you know, he's omniscient. He has all knowledge of, of everything and counterfactuals. What would happen if, if X occurs, what would happen if X doesn't occur, those kinds of things. So really only God is, is the only one with the wisdom to uh, to affect the, the course of events in such a way. Uh, on top of the fact that, you know, God is a God of mercy and that, uh, so I, I think that even though he did allow David's child to be killed for this reason, well, you know, I'm not a person who thinks that, you know, I'm not a Calvinist, so I don't think that only the elect go to heaven. I think that if a child dies before the age of accountability, they'll be in heaven. 
And so I, I, I don't think that God was doing necessarily anything wrong to the child by allowing the child to die because he basically went right away into paradise with God. And so, um, or to Abraham's bosom, you know, awaiting the final resurrection, etc. But yeah, so I don't think anything was, I don't think God did anything wrong to the child, even if he was using the death of the child as an illustration to David of what David did to uh, Bathsheba's husband. So that's basically how I would respond to that kind of an argument. Well, that makes sense. I mean, I usually another response that I've thought of in the past is especially is to kind of bring home the point about what God has a right to do and kind of like the dissimilarities between the scenarios and abortion. Yeah. Like if, if you want to use this as a, something to say, okay, well, you're allowed to kill an unborn child or whatnot. You know, it's like what you should be doing then is taking somebody to a clinic or or whatever, and then waiting to see if God himself does the procedure, because it wasn't a human making the choice at that point. It was mm-hmm. God's judgment. Right. <laughs> you know, it's that's the only thing that you've really got a precedent for at that point. Right, exactly. You know, and God God could do it anywhere. See, so you wouldn't even need to take it to the clinic. So right. But yeah, and so you know, God is a God of mercy, and He wants He wants Christians to have mercy also, uh, which includes of children. You know, we've discussed the question of rape elsewhere on the on the podcast, so I'm not going to go too much into it right now. But you know, that that includes a child who was conceived in rape, and that you know, and and that includes the woman who was raped too, because she's been through a, a very traumatic situation. But as even Warren Hearn, who who wrote one of the leading textbooks on abortion practice has said in his book, you know, a woman who's been raped is not going to be served in the abortion clinic. Now he thinks an abortion should still be done, but that's obviously not going to remove the trauma of the rape. She needs to be referred for proper counseling. So if we allow her an abortion, she's just compounding one act of violence on top of another. And in many cases, it might even affect her more deeply than it would have otherwise, because now, you know, the rape wasn't her, wasn't her fault. It wasn't, it, she didn't bring it upon herself, but she did consent to having the abortion. So the abortion that she chooses might even be more difficult to, to cope with than the rape. And we do have women who've been raped, who've come forward and talked about it to show that there might be some precedent for that as well. Yeah. It, and it's interesting because pro-choicers I've often found well, in some of their more candid moments, we'll talk about how tough abortion is on women. Some of them will even admit that it can have psychological trauma, physical trauma. They'll say things like, you know, we should cut down on the amount of abortions. But it's like, I, all I can think of in that case is your whole point leading up to this was we're stopping them from going through physical harm. We're stopping them from psychological harm. But now you're saying we're actually encouraging you to do something that could also potentially so what's the upswing of this procedure if we're if we're risking the same thing that we're supposed to be saving them from? Right. And on top of that, we're guaranteeing killing a human life in the process. That seems to be the one thing guaranteed. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a tricky subject, but it's keeping it calm is the thing that I've, it's usually the hardest part. Yeah, it can be a very contentious discussion, which which can lead to you know, a lot of hurt feelings, name calling, things like that. It's pretty difficult to have a calm, collected discussion on this issue. That you, I remember you saying that you were really impressed with how 
civil Valerie was. Uh, mm-hmm. I had read some of her articles too, and I was fully going in there expecting to just be getting wailed on verbally. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I've I've responded to a number of her articles on various blogs, mostly on the Life Training Institute blog, but also on the Secular Pro Life blog. I've probably responded once or twice to her, and yeah, she's she was a lot more cordial in the debate than she usually is in her articles. So that's why it was so surprising to me. She even, uh, it's not on the recording, but she even took an interest because I was doing my master's thesis at the time that we were doing the debate. Yeah. And you know, she even gave me a congratulations once I told her about the mark that I got and stuff. So we've actually maintained oh. a fairly cordial, not close relationship, but, you know, we at least friendly with each other despite the really sharp disagreement. So it's possible. To- right. Yeah, so that's probably why it's better to do discussions like this than to do them over, you know, writing articles. Because even myself, I it, it's easy to fall prey to forgetting that there's an actual person that you're responding to. And so in, in an attempt to to be forceful toward the idea, you might end up being unkind toward the person as well. And there there's you know a, a big danger of that if you're not actually having to look them in the, in the eyes like you do on a on a discussion like this so i think having a, a debate like you did it's probably a better way to go than just responding over articles yeah um it well appropriately it humanizes the other person that you're debating <laughs> right right yeah and as pro-life people we, ne- we never want to forget that the person that we're talking to is also a human being yeah exactly the uh he, he uh, can't argue that everybody has value that's worth respecting if we don't right. show that even to the people we disagree with. So, yeah, exactly. Plus, there's that whole pesky thing about, you know, loving everyone, mm. <laughs> Jesus right. commanding that and stuff. It's really, <laughs> yeah, got to love our neighbor and got to love our enemies too. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's very easy to want to strike back, especially with how pro-lifers are pers- kind of shown in the media too. Or like when I hear how people, you know, say that we don't care about mother, the 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 single mothers, or we, you know, or they say you're only pro-birth, you don't care about what happens after. And I mean, right. I follow people like Laura Clausen. I follow um, other groups that actively try to raise funds for these parents too. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what are you guys looking into that you don't know what all pro-lifers are doing. You know, right. I think that's the other part is being yeah. able to educate them. Yeah. A lot, a lot of pro-choice people are just kind of in in an echo chamber. Secular for life actually has been posting about this on their Facebook and on their, on their Twitter as well, that they'll talk about how pro-choice people will say things like, Oh, if you, if you oppose abortion, unfriend yourself, I don't want to deal with you. And then they'll, they'll go around saying things like, why don't pro-life people care about these things? Or, you know, like, why don't I ever see pro-life people talking about these things? And well, that's because you unfriend everybody. That's why you don't see them. So, yeah. Yeah. Is, is it France? Was it Frank Francis Beckwith who was said, I think use the example or say somebody says to you, you can't, be pro-life unless you're willing to adopt Hmm. and he's like that's kind of like saying you can't be against spousal abuse unless you're willing to marry the person that's getting abused right yeah and as we're seeing with the possible nomination of uh of amy coney barrett to the supreme court even adopting children isn't good enough because they'll they'll, uh, find some way to denigrate you for even if you do adopt children so 
Yeah. What's going on with that? I don't. I'm not. I think I've heard it alluded to, but I haven't. I don't know the details. I haven't been following it. No. Um, you probably heard that Ruth Bader Ginsburg recently died, right? I did hear that. Yes. Yeah. So there was a vacancy in the Supreme Court, and since President Trump is still president, he has the constitutional right to nominate a new Supreme Court justice. So he had a short list of people that he was going to nominate, and Amy Coney Barrett basically rose to the top, and she's Catholic. And she has seven children, two of the two of which she's adopted, and one of her natural children is a special needs child. And so she basically counters most of the pro-choice talking points because she's adopted kids. Uh, she's a parent of a special needs child, and she has seven kids and is still able to hold down a successful career. The pro-choice Democrats, or I should say pro-abortion Democrats, because they're, they're definitely in support of abortion, not just pro-choice. But these pro-abortion Democrats are now saying that because Amy Coney Barrett adopted the two children from Haiti, that she's a racist for some reason, because, you know, adopting children from a different culture doesn't mean you're not racist. And, you know, there's all these reasons to think that her adoption was shady somehow. And, you know, the fact that she is anti-abortion means that they don't think she should be able to hold a position at Supreme Court. And it's just her, her credentials are impeccable. She is a graduate of Notre Dame. She's on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, I believe. So she has the experience behind her, too. So her, her credentials are impeccable, which means that the Democrats have to attack her personally in order to try and stop her from becoming a Supreme Court justice. And it's just a mess all around. So you really have to have an impeccable background if you want to be a conservative and on the Supreme Court. That's what I'm getting. Well, it would help because at least that way you can appeal to your credentials, even if the Democrats think you're a monster because, you know, you adopt kids from Haiti or because you're, you oppose their golden calf of abortion. Yeah, people have to be able to see that's a stretch, though, that somehow you're racist and adopting, like, what are, like, what are they trying to suggest that she has a guilt complex she's trying to compensate for? Like, yeah, I don't know. It's weird, man. I've heard some yeah. stretches, but that one definitely is the most unique one I've heard so far today. Yeah, I mean, it's just they, they, the Democrats have a long history of of attacking good Supreme Court nominees. You know, they did it with Justice Bork, who I think ended up not being. He, he was nominated, but I think he ended up being voted down. Justice Clarence Thomas uh, was basically called an Uncle Tom by the Democrats, and they just made up all sorts of rumors and untrue things about him to try and keep him from from getting onto the Supreme Court. There's actually a documentary released about it too. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where you could find it anymore. It was on. I think it was on the PBS website for a few days for free, but uh, you might have to go out of your way to, to find it now. But at any rate, yeah, and you know they did it with with Justice Kavanaugh. They tried to they tried to accuse him of being a rapist, and yeah, it's just Democrats fight dirty. Yeah, I can't say it's much better up here. Um, I don't know if you guys heard about it, um, but uh, I think it was a couple of years ago now. Um, when so Justin Trudeau, he's our Prime Minister, extremely left, liberal leaning, and yeah. One of the things he basically said is, if you want to be on my cabinet, you cannot be anything but pro-choice. Like, he doesn't even leave it open to discussion there. But one of the things he also wanted churches to do up in Canada was if they ever wanted government funding for internships that they were doing, um, 
they had to basically sign a piece of paper saying we support gay marriage, we support abortion. And if you don't sign off and check everything, then, you know, you're not going to get any funding. Yeah. yeah, we had something similar going on here in California. Our governor, I forget if it was Newsom or if this happened under Governor Brown, but basically pro-life pregnancy care centers were basically being required by the California court. Uh, I forget if it was the California Supreme Court or the Ninth Circuit or whatever, but they were being required to refer out for abortions. Pro-life pregnancy care centers were. And now that's a clear violation of their First Amendment rights. I don't know what kind of document you have in Canada that protects your rights, but you know, here in the United States, we have the Constitution and, and the First Amendment guarantees a right to free speech and a right to you know, freedom of religion and all these kinds of things. And so that was a clear violation of their First Amendment. But the, the leaders... At least here, we're, we're you know we're not a monarchy, but yeah. our, a lot of leaders tend to think that we are, and so <laughs> you have to really keep them in check. The the uh, the libertarians tend to sometimes not always be the most libertarian in what they expect of other people. I found. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But... The with with that, I guess, uh, what ended up happening with uh, did you, that law end up getting or that requirement end up getting struck down, or did it get passed? I'm I'm sure it did. I don't think I followed it all that close, but I can't imagine it's still standing because it, it's clearly unconstitutional. They, I'm I'm sure they would have taken it to the Supreme Court and had it struck down. This is the U.S. United States Supreme Court and had it struck down. Okay, yeah, it got that the thing Trudeau was trying to push on us. What it, I think it got overturned too because a lot of people ended up speaking up and saying like, "Look, this is what you're asking of us, and this is why we can't." So mm-hmm. I'm thankful that people listen to reason on it but i'm just wondering how many more times it's going to take before you know they get enough push behind them to to keep it you know that's then we're going to really be in a tough spot with that yeah i i noticed maybe a cringe when i said a libertarian i just i a lot of the libertarians that i know up here are very pro-choice and they would just like pro-lifers to keep their mouths shut and stay quiet about it so that's what i mean about the they're not very libertarian that way. It's not just. <laughs> yeah. Libertarians seem pretty split here in the United States. Roughly half are pro-life, roughly half are pro-choice. Joe Jorgensen was running for for president this year on a, on a libertarian ticket. And she is personally pro-life, but she doesn't think the government should regulate abortion. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's why I couldn't vote for her, but. Yeah, that's another that's another position I've been running into a lot lately. It's yeah, I'm personally pro life, but I wouldn't want to impose it on anybody else. And it's and that's such a you know that's that's a cowardly position. It's just saying you know I really don't want to argue with anybody about it. But really, what if slavery abolitionists said all said you know I personally oppose slavery, but I don't think we ought to make it illegal. That's clearly absurd. Whether anybody supports slavery or not the black people who are being enslaved were clearly having their, their rights violated. And so whether or not people agreed with you, you still need to make that practice illegal, you know? So, or it could make it more personal. I'm not personally against, or I'm not personally for sexism, but I don't think it's something that we should fight against. You know? Yeah. Right. Most people would accept that. Yeah. yeah probably not. <laughs> so, yeah, I find that that's kind of the, it's one I think it's possibly the most annoying tactic that I find being used on in this debate is we make a case that it's both um, a violation of human rights and it's murder. But then in the response, 
it somehow gets shifted to being just a matter of personal preference. Hmm. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, <laughs> right. and it's like, yeah, that's just an unfair character of position really. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, we're pretty close to going on an hour here, so I'm going to go ahead and, and close this out because I think the two topics we had to discuss uh, are, are pretty much have run their course. And, you know, so uh, w- once I end the broadcast, we could continue chatting, but I'm just going to go ahead and, and close this down for the, the official podcast here. Well, before we do close, though, um, where, where can people find you online? Do you have a, an online presence? I mean, most of my presence is Facebook, um, Chris Christensen. Uh, you can find me on there. Um, if any, I can put my email on the group on the chat too. If people want to reach me there, um, it's defenseofeden at gmail dot com. So any questions you have, or if you ever uh, want to talk about anything that I've mentioned here, feel free to message me there. Um, I've, I'm on Twitter, I guess at apologetic tweet. Um, hmm. So okay. those are the three main things. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again for coming on the podcast and filling in for Nathan this week. No problem. Thanks again for having me. Uh, If you appreciate this podcast, you know, please uh, share it around social media. You can uh, find us on iTunes or blogtalkradio.com slash pro-life thinking. Feel free to give us a rating, uh, especially on iTunes, because we were we were vote bombed recently by pro-choice people. So, uh, you know, help help us bring our rating back up. If you if you think the content that we bring here is beneficial and you are able to afford it, uh, we would ask that you, if you can, uh, help to support the podcast and my work as a as a pro life advocate. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full time to save them. So if if you if you can afford it and you're able to to give, you can go to the Life Training Institute website, ProLifeTraining.com, and you can go uh, click on Donate on the menu on the top, and be sure to put my name in the notes section, and then they'll put it into my account. Uh, and donations are tax deductible. So coming up in the next few weeks or so, we are going to be bringing on the last Tuesday of the month, October 27th. We're going to have Christopher Kayser on the podcast to talk about his new book, Disputes in Bioethics. And we're looking into having Mark Newman on the uh, show, too, to talk about a recent book he released called Contenders, which you can find my review for on the LTI website. So once again, I want to thank you for joining us and thank uh, Chris for, for joining me here. And we'll see you next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.